Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Mark Teshkoyan, who passed away at the age of 60 in January 2021, was a high school woodshop teacher and coach whose career spanned almost four decades. At age 27, he was diagnosed with severe kidney disease, which eventually led to dialysis treatments three times a week for 30 years. Refusing to let his disease defeat him, he lived life to the fullest with humor and selflessness and always gave encouragement to his students, athletes, friends, and family. In this episode, Always an Encouraging Word, Mark's Story, we are joined by Mark's brother, Mike, who is also a teacher and coach. Together, they were an extremely successful coaching duo. Mike will be sharing stories about his brother's life and the positive impact he had on all who knew him. I'd now like to welcome my friend of almost 50 years, Mike Teshkoyan, to our show. Welcome, Mike. Hi, James. Nice to be here with you today. Well, it's great to have you as well. And we're honored that you're here today to share Mark's story. Mike, I'd like to start off by asking you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And who was in your immediate family? Who did you grow up with? My parents were from West New York, New Jersey. They were lifelong residents there. And I lived there for the first five years of my life with Mark and my older sister. And I shared a room with my sister and my grandmother. They slept in the same bed. Uh, I slept in a crib until I was five years old. And Mark slept in my parents' room in a crib until he was three. And then we said, we better get the heck out of here and move to a place that uh, was a little bigger. So we moved to Caldwell when I was five. My dad was working here already in construction and he built our house that they still live in today. Wow, so your grandmother lived with you. Yeah, my grandmother lost my grandfather who I never met early on in their marriage. And so uh, one year after my father and mother were married, they said, come live with us. And my grandmother didn't want to do it. She didn't want to like, you know, spoil the family dynamic. But we loved having my grandmother around. She was a great influence on us, a great person. And I'm glad that she decided to live with us for the rest of her life. It's really a privilege for you to have somebody with that wisdom and experience just to have around. Yeah, the, the bonus was that she was a big Met fan and we were big Met fans growing up. Uh, the Miracle Mets of 69 and Tom Seaver. Uh, both me and my brother uh, would watch games with her. She would come to games with us, high school games with us, Little League games with us. So she was a big fan. Do you think she had something to do with you and your brother becoming such big sports fans? Oh, yeah. She goes way back to the Brooklyn Dodgers. She was a big fan there. Her love of sports definitely sprinkled down on us, for sure. Oh, that's great. So, Michael, what can you tell me about your family origins, your family history? Where did they come from? Well, I'm three quarters Italian and one quarter Armenian. So my mother's side is all from Italy. Both my uh, maternal grandparents came from Italy over in the early uh, 1900s. And my father is half Italian. The name Teshkoin is Armenian, actually. My grandfather and two brothers escaped during the Armenian genocide in the early 1900s. And he had a family of 11 brothers and sisters. And he was the only one with his two brothers to make it over. Otherwise, I would have had a really big family with a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles. 
So the ones who didn't make it over to this country did not survive. Yeah, they perished in the genocide. It's very, very sad. Oh, my goodness. That is awful. It's a miracle they were able to get over here. Yeah, and I think that's why we have such a strong sense of family, knowing that we lost so many potential family members. Our story, our history is just getting together with relatives and celebrating and having a good time. So speaking of good times, I just want to ask if you could tell a little about your earliest memories with your family, like vacations or family get-togethers, things like that, holidays. Yeah, well, we were famous for taking two trips at two times of the year. One was during our April spring break. We would go to historic places. We didn't really think much of it. In fact, we went to so many battlefields that Mark would say, what, another field I'm standing in? What's going on? <laughs> but we appreciate it now that the fact that we were together. We'd pile in the station wagon, the seven of us, my grandmother. We would be in the back and rolling around with no seatbelts on. We went to Gettysburg. We went to Antietam. We went to the World's Fair uh, in New York. We went to Expo 67. The highlight was going to Disney World when it first opened. But then my parents dragged us to see family, of course, in Tampa. We missed the whole day sitting around listening to old relatives talk to each other, drinking coffee and eating Danish. Uh, yeah. The other trips we were famous for was going down to shore, Point Pleasant, and to uh, Long Beach Island. We would rent a house with my cousin's family. We were very close to my cousins. They would have the downstairs. We would have the upstairs. We would play on the beach all day. and We would party at night, play poker. Just everything centered around the family was my biggest memories growing up. Those are great memories to have because I know you probably weren't too thrilled as kids to sit around with relatives when you were indeed very close to Disney World but it's sort of instilled in you and your siblings the importance of family and getting together with family. Yeah, uh, my parents were big on hosting people all during the uh, week. Of the, it was a different time in the 60s. They'd have parties once a week with the neighbors. They would have company every Sunday. Uh, in fact, when the doorbell rang, everybody got excited and said, company, company, who's here, who's here? Nowadays, when the bell rings, everybody just runs and covers like, who's that? Who's bothering me now? So they're from a different culture, but uh, we still enjoy our family get-togethers. Yeah, we owe everything to my parents. They're very uh, gregarious people. They love people. That's where our love of our students and our athletes come from. They set just great role models. Even though they would take us to visit company kicking and screaming on a perfectly good Sunday afternoon, Deep down, we remember it as the foundation for our family get-togethers today. Well, that's great, Mike. Let's talk about Mark now. What are some of your early memories of growing up with Mark as your brother? Well, Mark not only was my brother, was my best friend. We're less than two years apart. In fact, the joke was that people thought we were twins, and we never uh, dissuaded people from thinking that. We said we were nocturnal twins. I was born at night and he was born in the morning and that seemed to confuse people, but they believed it. We played together constantly in the neighborhood. We were kind of the ringleaders. We grew up on Cabell Place in Caldwell, which uh, had a lot of kids back in those days. So we were always uh, leading kids through sports and games. We put on a carnival for muscular dystrophy. We gave the money to Jerry's kids, Jerry Lewis. The biggest disappointment of our life was not being mentioned on the show during Labor Day. I can remember we waited all weekend to get it. And we got $100 from Mike and Mark Tesh Klein, and they never mentioned us. So, And it was a three-day 
marathon. Yes, it was. And we were glued to the set because we were so proud of ourselves running the carnival for most of it. <laughs> Good for you guys. So did you guys have similar personalities or did you? Oh, uh, no, we were as different as night and day, really. Um, I was more of the active one, never could sit still. He was more sedate, but we bonded in a lot of different ways. We were always together playing all hours of the night and day, creating games, having like miniature golf courses in our backyard, playing golf across the street into our neighbor's yard, playing touch football. We were pretty inseparable growing up. And that's one of my favorite memories is that uh, we were always together doing some kind of game or sport. Were the two of you competitive? Oh my God, yeah. Uh, we used to play a sock basketball game. We would throw balled up socks and had to go through the curtain rod. And one time I was going in for a stuff and he, he actually pushed my head through the window. <laughs> Luckily, the shade was down, so it cushioned, and the fact that my afro would help too. So we were very competitive. We would fight a lot and wrestle a lot, and you know, just typical brothers. Now, when you guys were in school, and you, I should say, when you say you graduated from high school, what kind of paths did you guys follow as far as your career, your academics, and things like that? Well, I think that we were both involved with kids. Growing up and organizing kids, we both tended to uh, veer towards teaching. I went in first to Seton Hall to become a phys ed teacher. And then Mark followed at Montclair State to become a woodshop teacher. But we both had coaching in our blood. My father coached us with Little League and Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts. We tended to um, get involved in coaching at an early age for recreation. Both of us were in high school and we coached together and that was the start of the 40-year career together of coaching. Yeah. So when you both graduated from college, what happened with both of your careers? How did you both start off? I got involved in Caldwell right away. Mark started in Verona. He developed a really close-knit group of friends that he kept in contact with until the day he died, actually. And some of his last phone calls were from uh, Verona uh, colleagues of his. There was an opening in Caldwell three years into his career. And there was openings in coaching. I had already started coaching three sports. So he became my assistant in both soccer and softball. That was kind of a nice thing. So that's where we took off from when he moved to Caldwell. So here you are, you guys have grown up together. You're brothers and friends. You're competitive. Yeah. I would imagine you may have argued once or twice. Oh my God. We had a rule where we wouldn't want to show it in front of the team, but we couldn't help ourselves being brothers. I don't do it now with my assistant coaches. We never argue. But my brother, uh, there were some funny kind of like incidents, I guess. But I would always tell him, like, just air our family laundry home, please. At home is where you let your hair down. But he didn't have much hair. That's what he would tell me. <laughs> he couldn't let it down, right? He couldn't let it down, no. Did you have different styles in coaching that you kind of had to mold so that they fit together? Yeah, I was more of a hyper one, tunnel vision, um, just was focused on the game. He was more gregarious and talked to people before games. I was too nervous to talk to anyone, but he would always talk to players, talk to parents, talk to opposing coaches. And in the letters that I got after he died, almost all of them mentioned the fact that he always took the time to talk to people and he was a real people person. So we kind of... Uh, complimented each other. I took care of the nuts and bolts and he like smoothed everything over with his uh, gregariousness. Now, Mike, 
you're now coaching together. You've both got teaching careers that are going. You're making it work. You're coaching. You're more than making it work. You're very successful. Tell us a little bit about Mark's illness and really what that illness was and when did it start and how did he react to finding out about it? Yeah, well, he was 27 years old and had a uh, couple of years of high blood pressure that kind of went undetected. Um, he started paying attention to it the year he got sick and the high blood pressure affected his kidneys. So when he finally went to the doctor, his kidneys were functioning at 50%. What he did was he was on a strict diet and protocol from this one doctor and he was not living a very productive life or a quality of life. So he changed doctors and the doctor was a little bit more aggressive in trying to make him feel as normal as he could. He was eligible for a kidney transplant that didn't work. It only lasted six months. He had a very aggressive form of kidney disease and the kidney disease came back uh, six months after he had received the kidney. So the only other option left to keep him alive was dialysis. And what followed was a 30 year career really on dialysis three days a week for four hours at a time. He was very uh, upset as you could imagine when people get you know, illnesses. I'll never forget one of the nurses took him to a cancer ward and went up there and saw all the kids with cancer. And he said, I'm not gonna uh, feel sorry for myself anymore. These kids are more important you know, than feeling sorry for myself in their fight. So he dedicated himself to trying to live as normal life as he could, despite the fact that three days a week, he would have to uh, get dialysis to clean his blood. That is amazing because when you think of having to commit to anything three days a week is tough. You know, you think about exercising or doing work outside three days a week or whatever it is, go through dialysis, I would imagine is a very, very strenuous taxing thing. Yeah, but um, most people didn't even realize the disease he had and what he had to go through from day to day. And he would teach a full day, he would coach a full day and leave practice or games to go right to dialysis at seven o'clock. He was often home after midnight and he did this for years and years. But he joked about it. People uh, would say, how you doing, Mark? And he would say, my kidneys don't work. <laughs> Being a matter of fact, but like trying to downplay it as much as he could. You mentioned that he decided that he wasn't going to let this beat him. He wasn't going to let it slow him down. And he was coaching and he was teaching. When you say he was coaching and teaching, there's more underneath the surface than just coaching and teaching. He was investing in people. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, he was famous for his notes, his positive notes, a tradition that we have established for a very long time. I couldn't believe how many people he wrote notes to. I mean, I know he wrote certain people, I would see him, but behind the scenes, he would write many, many people. That was his way of communicating positive notes, affirmations, uh, what they meant to him. And we developed a philosophy of trying to tell people what they mean to you at the time, not waiting until after you uh, graduate or after the time that he was over. It's like four or five years from now, you say to, uh, oh, I had a really great teacher and uh, I never really told them how I felt about them. When we received the letters after he died, almost everyone related a personal story that he uh, wrote to them, encouraging them. He was more than a sport coach. He was like a life coach. Well, that is so important. I think about, well, myself in school, I think about 
you know, certain teachers who really invested in me and who I remember to this day, but to actually get notes of encouragement must be worth a million bucks to a student or an athlete. Well, from the letters that we got, a lot of the students kept the letters. And not only did he, he write students, he wrote during his last few months when you felt really ill and uh, was in the hospital several times. He would sit at the kitchen table and he would write letters to his doctors and nurses saying, thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for all your efforts. And it was just remarkable. I mean, that was just inherent in him. He had uh, in his DNA to just be very thankful for every minute that he lived and every experience that he had. And he showed that through his words and his actions. It affected everybody around him, including me the most, I think. Contagious, right? Yeah. Mike, you've often told me about your brother's sense of humor. So how did Mark use his sense of humor to help with his illness? Well, he was an entertainer. I think teaching, you have to be an entertainer. So uh, he would spin yarns day in and day out, tell fairy tales. He told the kids he went to clown college and he had a red rubber nose that he'd wear in class. Kids believed it. Uh, he said he was married four times. Each marriage lasted for three months and that the possessions of his ex-wives were all in the back of his trunk. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he used humor and performances. He said he was in the Marshall Tucker band and uh, he sang the, uh, the line, can't be wrong. And, and when it came on the radio in the music class, he goes, that's me. And the kids would like look at him and say, like, is this guy telling the truth? But we used to say that like every other word out of his mouth was a fairy tale. But he, he just had fun. He had fun with the students. We had fun with the team. And when you're relaxed and having fun, you learn more and you play better. And I think that was a byproduct of his personality. Did you ever play jokes on each other? Because I know you, you have a good sense of humor too, Mike. No, he, he usually, he usually uh, kept it for other people. I don't recall a time where we kind of fooled each other. Uh, we were competitive enough, but because I didn't believe anything that he would ever say anyway, so it would never work on me. <laughs> when he told the truth, it was like, what? You're telling the truth? Like, we had to tell him four or five times. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, man. So... Not only did his sense of humor help him during this time with his illness, but it probably helped keep his students and athletes at ease when they may have been stressed out over a game or a test or something going on in their life at that time. Probably having a teacher or a coach who has a good sense of humor is very reassuring for some kids, I would imagine. Yeah. Relaxing students, I think, especially in sports and in a uh, dangerous situation like in the shop. You got to be on uh, alert at all times. So his demeanor definitely helped. And when he had to become serious and talk about his illness, it really helped put things in perspective. So after a tough loss, he would talk from the heart and say, you know, it's more about uh, life than it is the game. What can you learn from it? He would never actually mention what he was going through, but people knew. And they honored him many different ways, both living and in his passing, uh, to tell him, know what they really meant to him. Mike, I understand that you and Mark used to travel together as well. Can you tell us about some of those experiences? Early on, I made it a point to treat him as normal as I could. I knew that a lot of people in my family would treat him like kid gloves, knowing that he was kind of fragile. We lived together for 33 years. 
if we lived the life together, I was going to drag him along every trip that I could. So we were famous for traveling through the United States, through uh, our biggest trip was to uh, London. We had a great time in London. Seeing him interact with the London people was hysterical. He would mimic them. He would put on hats. He would say, hey, cheerio. And he would try to act. He was like English. They saw right through him, of course. We'd go to Disney World. That was our big thing. Like adults going to Disney World was not really uh, something that, uh, what you think of. But uh, we would go to the pirate shop. He would try on an eye patch and a pirate hat and make a pirate face. He was constantly making faces, putting on hats. I have dozens of pictures that we're putting all over Facebook now daily of him in some kind of getup. We were serious golfers. We went to Arizona and played golf. But all the while, he had to get dialysis traveling. So it was not an easiest thing to do. He would go to dialysis, and I would take the time, maybe go on a hike or climb a mountain or something like that, and pick him up, and we'd go to dinner and plan the next day. So it was not easy for him to travel, but he was a real trooper. He was courageous. He wanted to live a full life. And I always say, uh, since he died, that he lived the most complete life that I think I've ever seen anybody live. It had a full arc, a full cycle, and it was really his time to go because he had completed everything he wanted to complete. I think he knew that. and He let go knowing that he lived a life that was meaningful. Yeah, he sort of wrung out every bit of life he could, right? Yeah, there was just nothing more that he could accomplish. His health was deteriorating. He didn't want to be a burden to anyone. A lot of people who uh, advance in age, you know, become sedentary and they need assistance. And he never wanted that for us. He never wanted that for himself. I think he lived as long as he could and, and he lived the right way, which was important. So it's not the quantity of life, it's definitely the quality that he lived, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, Mike, you know, I think about you going away on those trips and how easy it would have been for Mark to say, you know what, uh, we have a couple months off in the summertime from teaching and coaching. I'm just going to take it easy. You go. Yeah. Well, the highlight definitely was our trip to Hawaii. We went uh, three times and we took helicopter flights. We took rocks where we were not supposed to black rocks. We had hilarious stories there where we kept on having like ill luck. We said, we better take these rocks back to the beach because uh, I don't think that we were supposed to do that. In fact, we went to a restaurant and we asked our waitress, are these rocks something that we should keep? And she went in the back and got her grandmother. And her grandmother came up speaking in a foreign language. And we could tell like, we better take these rocks back because she doesn't look too happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean like our camera dropped, we got into an argument. He cut himself shaving three or four times. Like all this bad luck stuff was happening. And I tell the class about when you go to Hawaii, don't take black volcanic rocks. It's against the god Pele. You may never come back. Yeah, that's right. Well, apparently uh, every year the post office gets boxes of rocks back. So Never do that again, right? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as adults and during these years that Mark was going through these treatments and battling uh, ill health, you had some great successes with your teams, didn't you? That you were coaching, the two of you? Yeah, we were very fortunate. We met the right athletes at the right time. We've won over 33 championships together in both soccer and softball. And 33 is a number that we kind of associated with them. He had a number 33 that he wore when we wore uniforms. Seems like for some reason, softball coaches wore uniforms. We, we don't do that anymore, but... Uh, when a kid wanted 33, he gave that number to the athlete. 
And he died at 3.33 in the afternoon, so we kind of look at 33 as his number. But we've been very fortunate winning our share of state championships and county championships. And it was just great people that bonded, that really believed in us, we believed in them. You know, it's something that we look back proudly. But again, it's more about the people and the memories, because long after you leave, you don't remember final scores, but you remember who you went through it with. And that's what we tried to establish all along. So it was kind of a residue of the design of, of what we try to teach the, the team. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's many, many athletes out there, former athletes who are adults with grown families and everything now that you've probably coached over the years. And I'm sure that their memories of you and Mark as their coaches and teachers are very good ones. Two of my three daughters had you as their teacher. They still remember your class and how much fun they had. So I think that's so important. It's, I think, a privilege to be able to impact a young person. And, you know, what do you do with that? And you and Mark certainly invested in your students and those young people who played sports with you. It sounds to me that probably the combination of both of your styles and your personalities really hit the mark with bringing about all these championship teams. Yeah, um, he inspired people, but more importantly, inspired me, motivated me to be the best I could. I write poems every year for Christmas. Last few were about him, and uh, I definitely was very emotional writing them. One of them starts with leave your mark upon the world and Mark was capitalized. A lot of people picked that up while he was actually dying. Making me a better person was definitely something that he was a big influence on. And I think that's part of the whole package that he brought into this world, making people better, including me. Thank you for that. When do you think Mark started to realize that maybe he didn't have much time left? Um, probably over the summer. With the COVID, it actually was a good thing for us because we were forced to stay at home. We had a nice deck and we started using it on a nightly basis. He got our grill fixed. We were like, never grilled anything before, but he would go shopping. We would have a nice piece of meat. I burned everything, but he sat down and he said, this is the best piece of meat I ever ate. And we would sit and talk and reminisce. And we kind of knew without saying a word that his time was limited. So I think over the summer, and then into the fall, I gave up soccer to be with him. And we just spent a lot of quality time because there was nothing else to do. And then um, when he first got affected was the brain bleed in September. Went to the hospital for a week. And he came home and he had brain surgery that seemed to have worked. In the end, it was just, his body just gave out. And uh, the last few weeks, he really knew that uh, he didn't have much time left. So he started connecting with people. He started writing as much as he could and he just accepted. He said, it's my time and I'm ready to go and I'm very okay with it. Having a lifelong illness, he never was promised tomorrow. So he lived in the present every day, he lived in the present. And that was a gift he gave to other people. That's very inspirational, Mike, because I think some of the times today, we there, there's a lot of anxiety, particularly during this COVID situation. A lot of people are anxious and I think probably the healthiest thing you can do is to live in the present. And it must have been so difficult for somebody. Well, maybe it wasn't for Mark, but uh, you'd think it would be difficult 
to look beyond not feeling well and knowing you have such a serious debilitating disease and still just grab life, you know, by the horns and saying, I'm going to live every day to its fullest. It's such an inspiration. It really is. Yeah. I consider his life like, uh, like being on Broadway, you know, he had his down moments where he would be a little bit, you know, under the weather and maybe not be himself. But when the curtain rose, he was, he rose to the occasion, you know, especially for my family. He put his best face on, especially, you know, for my sisters, nephews and nieces. And since we don't have any kids, he put a lot of time and attention into uh, my sister's families. That kept him going. Well, that's where having that close family going back to when you were kids is so important. It seems that that was, it was good for him to have that closeness with his family and also for the family to see him really dealing with his illness in a positive way that you, you can't fathom somebody being positive in that situation. But what an amazing human being he was to not only not just put one foot in front of the other, but to live life to its fullest and really be selfless and give to other people. Yeah, we did a lot with the four of us, my two sisters and Mark and I, over the last few years, we went to concerts, we went to ball games, we went to things just by ourselves without any spouses or anything. And we really bonded and we look back and we really appreciate the fact that we did that. In fact, we had tickets for Ringo Starr last year, uh, his birthday bash. And that would have been the last thing that we would have went to together. COVID hit and it was canceled. And uh, so we cremated Mark and we have a little box and we're going to take him with us when it gets rescheduled. Oh, yeah. Man. So he's always with us. He always is. You had mentioned to me when we had previously spoken about Mark, when the kids were not able to go back to school because of COVID, that he went in back into the wood shop to do some projects. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I really value the time that we had together over the summer. COVID shut down the school and uh, the seniors were left with their projects unfinished. So every day he would drag me to the shop and I would help him as much as I could hold things up while he would drill and, and stuff like that. He would ask for the drill press and I would say, here you go, brother. He'd say, oh no, that's a hammer. I go, okay. And he would correct me very uh, patiently. But uh he had all the skill as far as mechanical was concerned. And one by one, he finished every project and hand delivered them. I helped him deliver every project until the shop was clean. And while he was doing that, we filmed some safety videos for uh, the remote learning. And that's some of the best time. I have him with about eight different safety talks on eight different machines. When I miss him most, I go and I look at those videos of him with his humor and uh, his wit, talking about the machines and, and performing like for the last time. I think he knew it too when I knew it then that this was gonna be it. And he did last into September. Uh, he did do some Zoom and I was very fortunate to be able to hear him teach, you know, being in different schools and never really with him when he taught. I was with him when he coached. So to hear him tell the stories and to get his get-ups on and he had, Beats from New Orleans, which we went on a trip. And he always said he hated New Orleans, but uh, every time we, we talk about New Orleans, he remembers it with a smile. And the funniest story was that we went to a coffee shop 
he's not a coffee drinker at all, but he wrote the waitress a letter saying this is the best coffee I ever had. And he took a picture with her and he sent her the picture. And I went back years later by myself into that coffee shop and the lady remembered me and there was a picture on the bulletin board of Mark and her. And it was the coolest thing I've ever, ever seen. Man. So he definitely was that special kind of person who uh, made an impact on people in ways you wouldn't know. And seeing him teach was just something I'll never forget. Yeah, you, you got me with that one. You got me with that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Um, I just have to ask you, Mike, how, how did having Mark as your brother impact your life? I'd be a jerk without my brother, probably. I would probably be materialistic. I'd probably be success hungry. I'd probably not have the sense of adventure. I'd probably not be as compassionate. I owe everything to him. And I can never complain one day knowing what he went through and the impact that he had on people. I can never, ever complain about little stuff. And that's his lasting legacy, I think, on all of us who knew him the best. Thank you for that, Michael. This has been such an amazing story about your brother, just going back to your early years together and your family and kind of taking us through your time together. And you knew him the best. And to be able to say that you were molded by his kindness, his humor, uh, his love for other people and investing in other people, that is just such a wonderful thing. For the last question, I was going to ask you, what do you think Mark would have wanted his legacy to be? Well, just the way he lived his life, I think, being a positive influence on people, being a positive influence on my family, getting them to go outside the box and uh, live a full life and follow their hearts, do the things that they love to do, find something that you're good at, find something that you're happy doing, and then do it. I mean, that's the main thing. He loved what he was doing right up until the very end. And happiness is something that money can't buy. It truly is a cliche, but it's true in his case. You follow your heart, you follow your passion, you follow your happiness, and your dreams will come true. That is a wonderful legacy. And I wanted to conclude by asking you to tell us about what the community did for Mark on his, I believe, his last day. Well, in talking in the last few months, he didn't want to wake. He didn't want a funeral. He didn't want people standing in line saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So the community really rallied and we have to thank some tremendous families and police departments and things like that. They organized a car parade and over 250 cars paraded past our house for an hour. He wasn't able to uh, go outside. He was too disabled to do it, but he was near the window. He heard it. He looked out. He saw it. A tremendous amount of people just honking their horns with signs and honking. It was, it was a celebration of his life. And for him to be able to last long enough to experience that was the most joyous thing that a life could ever be. I think everyone should have a day in which they are celebrated. And he got to see that and he died the next day. He almost like willed himself to hang on until the car parade was organized. People were just so happy, honking the horn, like I said, and, and uh, yelling at him, throwing little trinkets. And his bedroom is kind of filled with all the mementos that we've received 
during the car tribute. People just couldn't do enough. And it's the way he wanted to go, the way he wanted to be remembered. Even the funeral mass that we had for him, we refused to call it a funeral. It was a celebration of life mass where we played Beatle music. You know, we had readings from the family and uh, that's the way he wanted it. It was very simple, very loving, very positive affirmations. We wanted every reading to reflect hope and happiness instead of, you know, feeling somber. And I think we really did a good job. I have to thank my sisters for really planning it. We all loved him very much. And uh, we thought we gave him a great send off and the community just came out. And I have two volumes of thick books of cards that came nonstop for three months. I just stopped getting cards only a few days ago. Going through that at family gatherings like Easter, we go through the books. He's definitely alive and present in our lives. You almost don't feel so bad or, or so sad knowing that he is in your heart. It's quite affirming. And I thought I would deal with it in a lot you know, less positive way. And of course I have my moments. He would come back and kick my butt if I didn't live my life the way I wanted to live my life. So I'm honoring him every day that I live. Oh, that's terrific. Michael, and I did want to ask you about one other thing. I think you told me that some of Mark's athletes, some of your athletes had put together some scrapbooks. Mark would tirelessly take pictures during the games, uh, after games. He would collect every article that was written. He would make up game summaries. He would put them all in a book and go to the printing press and print them for each and every kid, not just seniors, each and every kid. And he did that for years and years and years. And uh, that was kind of like his hobby. He would sit at the dining room table, I'd be watching TV and he was printing stuff, he was putting pictures in, he was going down to the uh, local camera store to get pictures processed. And in the cards and in the uh, conversations that they had with the team, they all have them, they all kept them. They all have such precious memories of them. Some are in boxes, some are in drawers, and it just gives them a sense of happiness knowing that they have a record of their time together with their teammates and us. And there's no better gift than that. And he was just so willing to give up his time to do that for people. It was quite amazing. Michael, this has been a wonderful tribute to your brother, an amazing, courageous man who faced his illness head on and just showed humor and selflessness towards other people. And I just think this has been a wonderful experience for me. It's very inspirational. I know a lot of people are going through tough times. I think people are tiring of this pandemic. A lot of people have lost people. Hearing about your brother and his amazing positive attitude is just like refreshing water to help us to sort of not just put one foot in front of the other, but just be thankful for the days that we have, pour into others, and just show kindness towards others. It sounded to me like, Mark, despite the three days a week with the dialysis and the coaching and the teaching, I mean, he still found time to sit and cut out scrapbook and do pictures and write notes. It's more than the extra mile. It's the extra 10 miles. Mike, I understand that Mark also wrote you a special note near the end of his life. Yeah. Can I read you the note? Yeah, please. Dearest brother, words cannot express the gratitude I feel towards your constant love, care, and support. 
all these years, especially now during this strange time. All the years we shared so much together, coaching triumphs, golf trips, Disney trips, and the memorable trips to Hawaii and London. I'm not sure two brothers could share a closer bond. I'm glad you were able to travel away from the responsibility of constantly caring for me. And I believe me, I always will be so proud of your accomplishments. Although I truthfully was so happy to welcome you home. When you can share so many triumphant moments with your brother and best friend, you truly have lived a blessed life. You should always remember at the greatness you have exhibited in your life and the extraordinary and how extraordinary you are. You have touched so many people. You're in such a positive manner and you make me so proud of you. May God bless you always. My love and admiration and respect for you are the best. I love you with all my heart. Brother Mark. Oh. <laughs> that was when he was the last few weeks. E.T. wrote me. He's dying. He's writing me. Everyone should get a letter like that, right? Yes, they should. Mike, I'm so happy that you were willing to share Mark's story with us. It's a real testimony to the fact that you can get more out of life when you invest in others, which is what he did. If, if there were more marks in the world, we wouldn't have all these problems, really, believe me. Amen. I totally agree, Mike. Well, I thank you for uh, setting this up. You're a dear friend, and I appreciate you very much. I always enjoyed our friendship, and I think you're doing a marvelous job. And it was good for me to get out the story of Mark, and hopefully we'll help people along the road. Michael, thank you very much, and I hope you have a really wonderful evening. Thanks very much, James. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.